Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I'm glad you're with us. Uh, you know, interesting show planned for you today because there's a, I mean, obviously there's so much going on, but one of the challenges right now is people say, what do I do? Are there good bargains out there in the stock market? After all, we've had this sort of 25, 30% decline, depending which areas you're looking at. Well, Ryan Irvine's going to join me from Keystone Financial, and he's got a couple of suggestions, but equally important, he tells you what you should be looking for. In my words, they've been throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And the last time this happened to this degree, I'm looking back 2008, 2009. Well, boy, it was a chance to plant the seeds that literally seemed like they went to the sky. So, but that's not everything. Make sure you're getting that message. Ryan's going to explain it all, though, so stay with us. Also, of course, I've got Mike Levy. Interesting that this whole challenge, though, is we've got a slowing economy and we've got inflation. We saw the inflation numbers you know, coming out of September, 6.9%, 11.4% for food. Well, the response to that is regularly, hey, let's raise interest rates to stop that. But you know what? The economy's slowing down. I'll check in with Mike about that. Plus, Victor, there's just so much stuff going on around the world. I've got a great Goofy Award. I've got Ozzy Jurek coming up with me. Uh, Ozzy's going to talk about the one variable that we should be keeping our eye on if you want to know where interest rate, uh, where uh, the real estate market's going to go. Yeah, there is an interest rate component, but it's not that. There's another variable that he's got his eye on. He'll share what it is. And I'll tell you, it makes perfect sense when you hear it. As I say, much more coming your way. But first, you know what? Virtually nothing's changed. Climate activists are still throwing tomato soup at multi-million dollar paintings and gluing themselves to the floor of a Porsche pavilion in Germany. The cry of no fossil fuels now still echoes in the corridors of Extinction Rebellion, Suzuki Foundation, maybe even the faculty lounges of Canadian universities as a tribute to their extreme oversimplification in demanding divestiture of fossil fuel companies as part of their effort to prevent them from having the capital to expand supply, which the world so desperately needs today. Also noteworthy in the world of higher learning is the absence of anyone back then or through the whole process who was willing to buck the groupthink that presented a wholly unrealistic, impractical, unworkable timeline for the transition to a renewable energy grid, as well as a refusal to admit the role that fossil fuels will have to play in powering that grid as we go forward, whether it's equipment to mine, refine and manufacture wind turbines, solar panels, batteries, and the infrastructure needed. I don't know whether that's a product of intellectual laziness on a grand scale or a reinforcement of every caricature of ivory tower academics who don't live in the real world. But one thing seems clear is that groupthink is alive and well in much of our politics, the media, and academia. But to my point, it's as if the energy crisis in Europe or in the fertilizer industry, I'll talk more about later, isn't happening. They're still not critical of the simplistic no fossil fuels mantra as if it's astounding that there's no lessons to be learned. My gosh, this is sitting there looking at all the consequences that are already rolling out. I mean, things like the closing of small businesses and manufacturing plants throughout Europe due to high energy prices. To say nothing of the massive civil unrest we're seeing, that's not just the EU, we're seeing it throughout the developing world. Many of them, though, are avoiding accountability by instead saying, you know what, it's all about those Russian sanctions. That's what we got. We didn't see coming. Of course, they did exacerbate the energy shortage. That was already in evidence, though, and that's the point. It was in evidence five months plus before the February 24th invasion. 
You know what? A year ago, right now, electricity prices in the UK had already risen by a factor of 15 over the 20-year average that was in existence between 2001 and 2020. That's largely due to the fact that North Sea wind power generation didn't produce the expected energy. The government was left scrambling in the open market for replacement power. At the same time, German electricity prices more than tripled between October 2020, October 2021. I mean, it was already happening. But that's not all. I mean, when it comes to the climate groupthink on the part of the political class, listen to this. Astoundingly, think about this in Ukraine. I mean, tens of thousands of deaths, massive destruction, the displacement of millions of people. Pateri Talas, she's the secretary general of the World Meteorological Organization. That's the UN's weather agency. And he states in quotes, from climate perspective, the war in Ukraine may be seen as a blessing. A blessing because it's uh, accelerated the development of and investment in green energies over the longer term. My goodness, a blessing. He goes on to say from the five to 10 year timescale, it's clear that the war in Ukraine will speed up our consumption of fossil energy. In the longer term, though, it's going to speed up this green tra uh, transition. Ergo, it's a blessing. By the way, the same sentiment echoed by European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. This week, Prime Minister, the Prime Minister weighed in, stating the conflict was helping to, in his word, accelerate the shift to renewable energy. That seems to be the new group think, that there is a silver lining of the Ukraine war, is that it's going to speed up the transition to renewable energy without a mention that it was the reliance on renewable intermittent energy without adequate backup power that forced the EU's reliance on Russian energy, caused a significant price spikes in electricity in Europe last fall. Still no acknowledgement of the role that fossil fuels will play in the transition, as I've been talking about. Not even the current calamity is enough to force a more realistic, practical attitude on the part of the climate crowd, which here's the thing, assures more mistakes are going to be made while the transition takes far longer to become a meaningful reality. One final note, you know, I get asked whether it's on social media, I get asked on mikesmoneytalks.ca, well, what can the government do about these increasing prices and the higher energy squeeze, uh, you know, that kind of thing? You know what? The answer is straightforward. You've got to increase supply. That would lower prices. It would ease inflationary pressure. But you know what? It would also reduce the value of Russian exports, which would hurt Putin's war effort. But our politicians aren't willing to because their priority is climate change and continuing the support of people who care about it. So instead, hey, they put up roadblocks to development. Uh, they threaten windfall taxes. And it's all the while saying, hey, we don't want your product. I want to bring Mike Levy in here right now. Mike, first, first of all, I appreciate you taking the time. Everything's so darn busy these days. Well, it sure is, Mike. And by the way, did you uh, catch during this week the Bank of Canada quarterly survey of consumers and businesses? Some really interesting stuff. Yeah, isn't it interesting that it looks like the consensus is building that we are going to get some level of recession, that that's what's going to happen. That Now, again, I'm always on that camp that says, who cares if it's a tenth of a percent gain or a tenth of a percent loss? But one of the things that now we do have disagreement. I mean, the International Monetary Fund disagrees. Uh, uh, I think the conference board disagrees. Anyways, it's a mishmash. But yeah, the, re the recession talk is certainly picking up momentum. It, it certainly is. And it's got, you know, most uh, 
continue to believe inflation will remain elevated for the next several years. But both surveys, both consumers and business, showed a sharp drop in business and consumer confidence. And I think that's key, Mike, uh, the, the most important metric for the Bank of Canada for both both surveys was inflation expectations and consumers and businesses believe that there's going to be further price increases and that can affect the trajectory of inflation as employees negotiate higher wages and companies raise prices to protect their profit margins. You know, it's interesting though, uh, and this is the dilemma. I think you've nailed it with the dilemma. Okay, so if we are going to still have persistent inflation, as you say, but there certainly consensus is a much slower economy. So the Bank of Canada is going to raise rates into a slowing economy. That is not the textbook, that's for sure. Usually if the economy slows down, you lower interest rates. Here they're doing both, slowing economy. Presto, we're still worried about inflation, so we're going to increase rates. That's not a formula for a real robust economy. Well, it's not, Mike, and I think that's what, you know, you, you hate to say this, but the inner feeling is that's what they want. And uh, who could want a slower economy? Who could want people needing more and not getting any more? But I think that's where they have to go. Uh, you're so right, though, uh, that this is the thing that we've been emphasizing because I didn't see it enough in the, the broad media. And that is my reaction, for example, Mike. You know, I'm one of those, and I think the number was like 40 to 50% of Canadians who thought, you know, maybe not the time to take on a big ticket item. You know, whether it's a reno or a new car or something, you get lots of people saying they're changing their buying patterns uh, at the grocery store even, uh, you know, so I don't buy a high cut of meat, maybe I get ground round, whatever it is. My point only being, that's exactly what they wanted to happen. They want me to slow down my buying. They want me to slow down my demand. And hence, inflation sort of drops down. Well, it does, or it's supposed to anyways, but uh, two things there, Mike. First of all, a recent survey showed that Canadians are, are expecting to spend 17.5% less for Christmas shopping than they did last year. Well, that's one of the Bank of Canada's wishes coming, coming true. And um, the other thing that really worries me, and I know we talk about it, almost every week now is the way grocery prices are going up, Mike. And uh, people, as you said, buying that more expensive cut of meat. Well, some people aren't buying meat altogether. It's just uh, up 11.4% last month on an annualized basis. That's the highest rate of go growth year over year pace in 41 years. And, and that's very, very worrisome. Well, especially, obviously, that's not a discretionary item. When people cut back, they cut back on discretionary items like maybe travel, entertainment, et cetera. But yeah, 11.4% jump. Nobody can avoid buying food. You know, as you say, they may substitute to a cheaper product or whatever. But yeah, that's where it hits every one of us. Well, Mike, there's a point here that I really want to make to you because um, I was away, as you know, and I missed money talks in the last couple of weeks. So yesterday... Well, at the gym, I'm listening to Money Talks like I usually do. And Mark Leibovit was on. And boy, did he ever, ever have a lot of really good information for listener. But one that really piqued me was uh, he nailed it when he said, the coming recession will not ease until the time comes when higher interest rates slows inflation and inflation rate rates fall below the rising central bank rates. Put that into English, then we've got to see the bank rate over the inflation rate 
And right now, bank rate at what? Uh, going to be 4% next Wednesday and the inflation rate 6.9%. They aren't anywhere near each other. And of course, that's the key. And we'll be chronicling it, Mike. And I think that point's very well made. In the meantime, go out and have a terrific week. You too, Mike. Thank you. Time now for the quote of the week, and it's brought to you by Easy Invest's Western Canada Monthly Income Fund. But first, I guess I better give you a little context. We had a poll this week conducted by Ipsos for the Montreal Economic Institute. Here's what it showed. More than 72% of Canadians believe that the tax burden on individuals is too high. Of that, you know, of the 72%, 44% saying they're too high. 28% said they're way too high. Only 21% consider taxes to be at an acceptable level. But it's the 72% of Canadians who believe that their tax burden is too high that I want to talk about. And by the way, that's before some existing taxes, like the carbon taxes, are going to increase again next April, let alone, you know, you could have a property tax increase. Uh, the amount of sales tax we're all paying is up because, of course, the cost of goods is up. But it brings me to my quote of the week by Baptist minister and author Adrian Rogers, who states, when half of the people get the idea that they do not have to work because the other half is going to take care of them, and when the other half gets the idea that it does no good to work because somebody else is going to get what they worked for, that, my dear friend, is the beginning of the end of any nation. Looking forward to talking with Ryan Irvine. He's part of the guys at Keystone Financial. Get a chance to talk with Aaron Dunn on occasion. Uh, Ryan, long time no chat. Great to have you here. Great to chat with you once again. I'm in a hotel in Anaheim. It's uh, <laughs> This is a break from my 12 hours yesterday at Disneyland and my 12 hours tomorrow talking to companies. Okay, there, there awesome. you go. You guys are a wonderful reprieve, right? <laughs> well, you're probably the only person on the planet who'd say that about me, but I'm going to take it. <laughs> Believe me, I appreciate it. Hey, Ryan, I was, take the wind. Yeah, I was thinking of uh, you and Aaron and what you guys do, the whole team at, Key, uh, at Keystone. And the reason is this. Uh, we've been talking, I guess, always oh, over the years for years. But my point is, I'm wondering if this isn't a much more interesting market to you, that you guys always look for exceptional value, overlooked value, uh, a lot of it in small caps. Aaron looks at uh, more senior uh, positions. And I'm thinking, hey, isn't this a better time for you right now, despite the doom and gloom? Yeah, it, it sounds cryptic to people who, you know, see the market, see their portfolios going down on a day to day basis. But we actually get far more excited. We haven't seen, to be honest, in five years, growth at a reasonable price widely spread. Now, the market's bifurcated right now. There's some areas where we see growth at a reasonable price, some where we don't, some we'd buy and some we'd avoid. But, um, you know, the, the, the Nasdaq is down 35 percent, S&P 23 percent. So I'm actually excited. We know the profile of the businesses we want to own, and we can see many of them moving within those goalposts right now. And we expect to see many more over the next 12 to 24 months. So valuation-wise, this is we're starting to be able to find companies that we like. Now, has it come back completely? The pendulum swell, swung so far into overvalued territory in 2021. We tracked the Schiller PE and it got to a 20-year high. It's only been higher once in its history, and that was in the dot-com craziness. So we've swung back to basically at par with the level we've seen in the last 20, 20 years in terms of the Schiller PE. 
but it's still 50% higher than its average since inception over the last 120 years. So are we in screaming buy territory across the markets? No, I, I'm not buying the index, but can I find individual situations that I couldn't find uh, you know, five years ago? Over the past five years, yes, uh, you can today, which you know, for us uh, gets us more excited. And there's a couple areas that we're looking at, like generally. Let me um, um, let me interrupt just for a sec, though, because I think what's interesting, what's interesting is that, you know, a lot of people have been playing ETFs or uh, index funds, uh, maybe some on the mutual fund side. So when they liquidate, that can create a situation where they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater because it's a one blanket kind of sell. Uh, not necessarily oh, yeah. so much for mutual funds, but in the index funds, so they get rid of everything. And to me, and that's what I was thinking, that it can create some, uh, you know, they've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. Some things need to be thrown out for sure, but others uh, overreact when they don't have the same sort of financial challenges going forward. Yeah, and, and people put their heads in their sand and this this time, like they, they, they sell without looking at the underlying fundamentals of the business they're selling or if it's just in an ETF sold it has to be sold because they're making a, a sell in an ETF now like there's two areas that we're really focusing hard right now they're these great what we call great businesses across sectors that we've followed for years even decades and want to own but they haven't met our criteria largely due to valuation uh, many companies that we're monitoring in the Canadian market, large and small, but some of the larger companies like uh, Sleep Country or Parklawn, Premium ba Brands, Constellation. There's U.S. tech names like Intuit, Box, Inc., Autodesk, all these companies that we're looking at that we like the businesses, but they've been too expensive for us. Um, if they come into that goalpost multiple range where we see growth at a reasonable price, we're going to be aggressive during this downturn and buy uh, because you know, these are businesses that we like. We just want to own at a reasonable price. The other type of business we like are cash rich, cash rich quality small caps. They sell off. Like you said, babies getting thrown out with the bathwater. And we've done that in 2008, 2009. We made 15 buys in a, about a four month period. That was for us. It was like a kid in a candy store. You saw value everywhere. Those are the times to buy. Now we're not at that, those levels yet, but you're starting to see companies and we expect there's tax loss selling season coming up in December. There's going to be some companies there. And we'll even talk about one today that, you know, is very recession resistant, cash rich balance sheet, and it literally has sold off, you know, 30% with nothing wrong with the underlying business and that when you know good companies come on sale you want to buy them not you know stick your head in the sand in your portfolio this is where you need the advice more than ever well and it's interesting that uh you you probably you just answered my question which was what are you looking for so the first thing you said is we you know if they've got the cash flow they've got some earnings developments but you want it to be recession proof i mean there are yeah. industries that are good i mean and we've seen it by the way during the pandemic it was a farce to say that everybody was in it together different industries yeah. thrived some just got killed. I think it's the same environment now, as I alluded to earlier with Mike Levy, you know, that some se sectors are good, some sectors are bad. But I just want to reiterate with you that you're looking at companies, you say, I like the profile, but I've also got to like what I see going forward, at least from an industry basis where they can take advantage of it. Oh, yeah, the markets are always looking forward. So you may see, I mean, there's some commodity businesses right now that we like, some that we don't like, because, uh, you know, if you look forward, 
like the lumber industry, for example, if I just give you an idea, lumber started the year $1,200. Today, it's 600 Well, there's companies in that sector you can find two to four times earnings, like actual earnings. It looks incredibly cheap, but the, sa- the sale price has been cut in half. So you go from you go from a time when they were able to create incredible cash flow to it could be negative cash flow for that two times earnings quickly becomes even negative if they come out with negative earnings. So you got to be careful on that. There's some, you know, LNG companies. There's a, a company that we're looking at that uh, services that sector. And we see long-term build there. We don't just see a commodity based build. It's a long-term 12 to 24 month uh, time that we may look at buying into that segment. Uh, technology, like the market's really bifurcated. Uh, you look at businesses like Shopify, it's down 78% year to date. So every, all our clients, they, it must be cheap now. Well, it still trades at a hundred plus times earnings. Well, do you look at a company like Alphabet or Google, it trades at its lowest PE in the last, you know, basically ever it's 16.9 times forward earnings. So you really have to look down, like you said, it's a stock picker's market. I don't want to buy Shopify, but do I maybe want to buy Alphabet or Google at its cheapest level in 20 years with growth and uh, 10% of its market cap in cash, just an awesome balance sheet. So those are things that we're looking for. Individual companies, individual industries that we like uh, going forward. And then obviously recession resistant businesses. We love that. You know, it's interesting that uh, one of the messages that I continue to try and put out there, and I know Victor's helped me over the years and all that, is you can like the story, and you're describing this, you can like the story, but you don't have to like the price. And a lot of people forget that second part. You can say, I think this is a fabulous business. I mean, they're doing great and all this, whatever. I like the sector. Oh, but we're overpaying for it. I just wish people would remember that second part that you're alluding to here. Yeah, and and we could say that we don't, hate Shopify the company, but we've been asked about it for five years and it's always been too expensive for us. So if it doesn't meet that criteria, you have to be disciplined on that business. There are many businesses that we've watched for four or five years before we've actually bought. And some you'll watch for four or five years and they'll never come into your goalpost. So the most important thing for us is to be disciplined on which companies we're buying. And if they don't fall into those goalposts, we just won't recommend them. But, you know, there are companies right now that are falling into that, uh, those goalposts that we like in terms of growth at a reasonable price that, you know, we have watched for five years that either have become buys today or will over the next 12 to 24 months. And those will be the opportunities that we can take advantage of. And you'll thank yourself for buying them. It may not work in six months or even a year, but if you look back two to five years, you'll thank yourself for buying good companies when they come on sale. Uh, just, uh, I'm going to ask you for a couple of examples of those, but just before I do, uh, you're doing a couple of webinars coming up, one on November 2nd, one on uh, November 8th. But what you're talking about is building a stock portfolio during this kind of market, you know, yeah. during a bear market and taking advantage of that. Uh, give me a couple of the things that you'll go over, because that's part of this too, is that, okay, where do these individual stocks fit in your overall investment plan and in, in portfolio? And that's specifically what you're going to be dealing with in these webinars. Yeah, we'll talk about where we came from over the past year in the markets, where we are today, where are the valuations if you look historically, and you know how to position your portfolio. Like we said, you make your money when the market is down. This is when you want to buy companies. You want to position yourself in 
quality businesses that have growth at a reasonable price. And we'll, we'll talk about how to handle that bear in your portfolio. We'll give you in the online webinar, seven stocks that you can buy today that meet our criteria and just how to simply build that 15 to 25 stock portfolio, how to layer into positions. You don't have to buy a full position in an individual stock. You can buy half or a quarter position, just showing investors how to construct how many stocks to put in a portfolio over what period of time to build it and obviously giving them some you know individual companies that they can buy today and look at adding to their portfolio over the next 12 to 24 months well I, again i just tell people that's november 2nd and november 8th uh, and i always think this information is just so important and by the way uh, the early bird ticket is under 30 dollars for goodness sakes 29.95 uh, a vip ticket is 79.95 uh, and we're going to feature this you go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and you can click on uh, get all the information you want go to uh, stocks um, keystocks.com get all the information you want uh, there uh, easy to go to mikesmoneytalks.ca though um, as i say you're going to get seven stocks right there alone so ryan i don't want to uh, you know steal the thunder and ask you for a couple but i want you to give me a couple of names that sort of describe the approach you're taking yeah, and, and from a, if we want to look at the recession resistant type businesses, I mean, this company is cash rich, just implemented a dividend because they have the cash and are cash flow positive. And they trade it nine to 10 times earnings when we remove that cash value. So the company's Bioscience, symbol RX on the TSX venture, trades around $7. So they just put a dividend in, it's about 2.26%. It has an $88 million market cap. What is it they do? Well, they're a specialty pharmaceutical company. They have the number one recommended, doctor recommended iron supplement. They're a market share leader in Canada. It's called Ferramax. So if you need iron, you do not stop taking it in a recession. They're using their strong cash flow generation essentially from this business to expand into other product lines. They've in licensed into the Canadian market a Project or a product called Combalgesic. It's essentially acetaminophen, sorry, acetaminophen and ibuprofen. And they have a women's health product too. Now we expect growth from these over the next two to five years. So last year they did about 28% growth in revenues. This uh, earnings jumped 69%. You don't expect that every year. In the first half of this year, earnings were up about 10%. On a trailing basis, they have 50 cents in earnings. I said they trade at $7, but they also have $2.20 per share in cash. So if you take that $2.20 out, they trade at about nine times earnings. Uh, we think that growth would be in the 15% range. Apply that multiple to stock, our fair value would be about $10.50. So you can buy it for $7. Over the next two to three years, we think it can get to that price if they can start growing those other products outside Ferramax. So Again, recession resistant, trading at a market multiple that is well below the market uh, in terms of a PE, and a good business that could add a growth element over the next couple of years. And th those are the type of businesses that will insulate a portfolio and give you a 2.2% yield which can grow over time. So that's one company we're looking at. Well, again, and also emphasizing the fact that uh, they've got cash on hand. If things continue to get rocky, you know, they've got the cash to support themselves there. Yeah. Uh, and as you say, recession, it's not a recession. And they can business. go on the offensive with it too. They can go and use that cash there and buy businesses to grow. Uh, it's interesting. Again, uh, it's a great example of a sector though. 
that is recession proof when people say, well, what, what would that be? Well, there's a great example, you know, people taking an iron supplement. Well, they don't say, well, not today because of the recession, you know? Yes. So yeah. no, you it, need that. It, it continues. Uh, let me ask you about one that you guys have done because you were early days in the renewable energy sector looking for opportunities. And one of the stocks you talked about uh, at a much lower price than it is today was Polaris Renewable Energy. Give me a bit of an update on what you're thinking of that now, because, of course, you continue to review all the stocks that you've been involved with. Yeah, Polaris is a company. It's the aggressive end of our, or the higher risk area of our Canadian dividend stock universe. Polaris is uh, symbol PIF on the TSX. Uh, it's, it pays a 5% dividend, which we like. Uh, they are a Latin American renewable power producer. They have a 72 megawatt geothermal plant in Nicaragua. It's uh, under a 20 plus year power agreement. Projects located in Peru, 32 megawatts run river projects, 32 megawatt solar product or facility in the Dominican Republic and expanding throughout Latin America. Uh, they trade, our fair value on this, it trades around $15 is $25. That would be just 10 times our estimated 2022 cash flow of around $2 per share. That would be $2.50 or 50 Canadian. Uh, the company has expanded. It's fully funded in terms of its growth that we expect over the next several years. Uh, they're bringing new projects online. It pays that dividend that we expect to see an increase over the next year in that dividend as well. And it trades it a significant discount to peers. We think over time it gets a re-rating. It was originally just a single country uh, stock or a single country uh, uh, pure play producer, but now it's moved across Latin America. Uh, as it gets a re-rating on its multiple over time, we think you can see a lift in the share price. And again, you're paying a very low multiple to the actual cash flow that's coming out right now. So you get a good dividend. We buy it when it comes on sale. It's come down from the $20 range. So it's, it's come on sale again. It gives us a good dividend and it's a good growth at a reasonable price company. And it, you know, you don't, they don't shut off their power in a recession. So that's one company we like. Well, let me just, uh, you know, the, the challenge for uh, someone in your business, you know, that you're doing stocks is you can have some spectacular victories and about 10 minutes later to say, yeah, well, what's next? You know, it never, course, never always. gets, never gets easy that way. But th this is relating uh, to the kind of market we're in. And I'm thinking I'm going back to 2008, 2009, you know, that sort of period. And, you know, the financial crisis, most people are aware of that, you know, subprime mortgage crisis, what have you. And I remember we put on a, a seminar then, Money Talks did, we held a seminar called Surviving and Thriving. Now, in that seminar, I'll never forget this, you recommended Boyd auto group, a Boyd group, it's called BYD. But what I really remember, Ryan, is the stock was under three bucks. And what I yeah, remember that it's gone to 190, 100, 190, yeah, I mean, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's $2 and 30 cents gone to, it's about 190 today. It's over 8,000%. I remember, yeah, I remember standing there because everybody, it was surviving and thriving. There was so much fear in the market. And you just go back to basics. We recommended a country, a company that cleaned laundry, Cabro Linen, because you're always going to clean. And you got to fix your car. You, you, got, you still got to go to work, recession or not. And, you know, Boyd traded at 4.5 times earnings. We're starting to see companies trade at, you know, eight to five to eight times earnings that have good prospects, good growth. 
and it makes us excited. So we're we're on the hunt this year for the next uh, Boyd at 2023 at the World Outlook. No pressure, of course, right? I was going to I was going to say it literally yeah, was got- the best performing stock in that decade. So you know we'll 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 try. I mean, we, there's other companies you know that that are starting to have that type of feel to them. I think we'd need probably another 15% correction in the market to really get those valuations. But, um, you know, you start to look at them today. You can't get too cute and try to pick a a bottom in the market. But there's some good value out there. And that's what we're really excited about. And, you know, we look at every company, 3,000 stocks in Canada, about 3,000 in the U.S. And, you know, we're looking to find those people throw babies with the bathwater and we'll look for those based on our criteria if it meets it we're going to recommend it and be aggressive well I, as you say no pressure at all but that's february 3rd and 4th at the world outlook we always enjoy hearing from you hearing from aaron but people don't have to wait that long because of course you've got the webinars coming up uh, again on november 2nd and november 8th and that's easy you can go to keystocks.com or go to mikesmoneytalks.ca to get the details there but come on uh, the early bird price, so don't wait for it. It's under thirty bucks. It's twenty nine ninety five. So there's that. But also, you've got on November fifth in Vancouver. It's an in person event. That was a webinar. This is an in person event, November fifth, and you'll be in Calgary on the stick sixth rather. And you're talking about a VIP stock portfolio building package. But that includes like everything. You get all of uh, you know what you do. <clears throat> excuse me at Key Stocks, uh, Keystone Financial. You get 15 high convection growth and you get the dividend stocks to, you know, you get uh, 100 plus annual Q&A sessions, which still blows me away, by the way. You get analyst calls. The package is huge uh, and it costs just under $2,000 for that. But that's everything, as I say, uh, not just the, in the live uh, events, but also, you know, uh, all of the products, uh, services, plus Q&As, plus you name it, uh, and recommendations. Uh, so that's also, you can check that out at keystocks.com, keystocks.com. So Ryan, let me just leave you with this. As you look forward, you're going out. Uh, as I say, you guys are busy. You're going to have seven stock recommendations at your webinar um, you know, coming up. But the bottom line is this. When you look out at this market, you're still patient, it sounds like. You've still got your criteria. You know, you're not going to be uh, emotioned into the marketplace as you say, people see something going down and they just say, oh, that's got to be a buy. Not necessarily. And I think that's the key message and the key methodology that you guys have followed at Keystone Financial. Yeah, discipline and sticking to that criteria. Stick with, to what you know and you know you want that a company to fall within those goalposts of growth at a reasonable price. And it really makes us excited because we do see that now. And you know, a lot of people at this time in the market, they stick their head in the sand. They don't pay much attention to their portfolio. Again, I keep reiterating this. This is where you should pay more attention to your portfolio and look for those great companies that you can add that you'll be thankful that you did, you know, two to five years out. So that's what we're trying to do. We continue to look for growth at a reasonable price. And we got some exciting companies at that seminar. And we'll, of course, have some great companies at the World Outlook this year as well. Well, great stuff, Ryan. I appreciate you joining us from Anaheim. Uh, There's a lot of other things I'm sure you're going to do at Anaheim, but we're glad that you're here with us on Money Talks. That's keystocks.com, keystocks.com. As I say, more information on mikesmoneytalks.ca. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. And for it, 
I think we go back to one of Money Talk's main themes. It's a big concern that we've been featuring since August 2021, as both the spike in natural gases and then more specifically ammonia started to impact the price of nitrogen-based fertilizer. And in turn, it has an impact on crop yields because people use less fertilizer. Now, I got to acknowledge the prospect that a huge increase in feud insecurity may not be way up on your list of concerns, but the prospect of a significant rise in even starvation levels is high up for me, especially given they're a direct result of the no fossil fuels climate policy exacerbated by the decision to sanction Russian energy, which targeted natural gas. You know what? I'm not sure which thought is more appalling. Either the climate crusaders in politics, media, educational establishment don't understand that natural gas is the feedstock for ammonia and urea, key ingredients for fertilizer, or they do. And they think that increased food insecurity, even starvation, are an acceptable price to pay to reduce global emissions. According to the World Food Program, the world's largest humanitarian organization, 50 million people are facing emergency levels of hunger in 45 countries. In just two years, the number of severely food-insecured people, people who have a real problem here, has increased to 345 million. That was from 135 million, as I say, just two years ago, 82 countries. That's a huge jump, obviously. As analysts at Doomberg State, we're on the cusp of a significant mass starvation event of our own making, which brings me to the shocking stat. Fertilizer Europe says that about 70% of the fertilizer production capacity in the European Union has now been halted because of soaring gas costs, which threatens, of course, farmers, uh, the use of fertilizer, reduces yields, all sorts of things. And of course, it gets back to consumers way beyond the European Union's borders. I mean, the spike in natural gas price is a double hit. First, of course, because the price of ammonia and urea have exploded. But second, because the manufacturing process itself is powered by natural gas. I mean, this week, Norway's Yara International announced that three quarters of their ammonia production has been slashed because of the high natural gas prices. CF Industries parroted that, announced further cutbacks in their production. As Bloomberg notes, the projected overall 7% decline in global fertilizer production is going to impact millions of people across Africa who already face starvation, as I just alluded to. And keep in mind, Today's fertilizer shortages impact next year's crops. So this is a problem that's not going away. I have been loading up on a lot of questions for Ozzy Jurek, and he's going to join me right now, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, it started with this. Looking at the immigration numbers in Canada, and now this is the positive story if you're worried about the real estate market. We've been chronicling it, but the government saying we're going to have X number of newcomers coming in, hundreds of thousands, over a million, over just a short period of time. But it's into a market that already had supply problems. And it didn't matter if I was looking to rent or I was looking to buy. It was already supply problems. And I, I think that's starting to get noticed. Well, interesting. It's even getting noticed in the United States. The Washington Post just did sort of a an expose, if you want, but they made the point that we had in 22, 431,000 following the 405,000 in 2001, 2021, and that we are now targeting 900,000 newcomers in 1923 and 1924. Wow, so we are growing in the last five years at twice the pace of the group of seven countries. 
Yeah, and they're going to live somewhere. I know that doesn't sound like a particularly deep thought, but that's still the driving force. We're going to have demand has been built in by our immigration. There's other reasons too, of course, natural birth rate, et cetera. But I think that's the overlay. I want to make sure that people, uh, you know, the sky is not necessarily falling, but you do go through periods. And Aussie, um, you, I mean, I remember in 1831, just kidding. I was a little <laughs> dig at the age, but no, we've both been through lots of ups and downs yeah. and we ended up up to so as our population drives it, you know, economic growth will drive it, all of these kinds of things. And I just uh, look at these numbers and, and tr- sort of in response to people who are, I mean, obviously, if I have to sell tomorrow morning, I've got a difficult market. But over time, again, I don't see how you get the kind of immigration numbers the government's targeting with a supply shortage already without putting a bottom in the real estate market. Well, no, no doubt about it. Mike Moffat, who's a senior policy director at the University of Ottawa's Smart Prosperity Institute, says that regional and local officials always underestimate population goes. CMHC says we need three and a half million additional houses by 2030. So it's very true. And now we have this lower market. And in this market, we have now big companies saying TerraNet, for instance, says that is the largest monthly decline on record since 1999. RBC says we're headed for historic correction. And my God, it's terrible, the news they're predicting. Nobody talks about the fact that we've already seen a 30% decline in single-family homes in Toronto, a 25% decline in Surrey. What does that mean? For the buyer, this is hello time. Let me take a good hard look at what's out there. I mean, we rush into the market when we all wrestle each other to the ground in the living room of the seller and pay 100000 to mark too much. That's a good market. No, now it's a good market. So, you know, this fear of missing out on the way up, now we have the fear of missing out on the way down. Yeah, and I think it's important also to chronicle when they're talking about activity is slowed. That was the goal of the Bank of Canada. That's the goal in the United States. You look at this huge jump, you know, their 30-year mortgage is the most popular mortgage. We're five-year mortgage people. Their 30-year. You look at the jump in payments and all of that kind of stuff. They're trying to shock the market, and it is in shock right now. So, and again, coming off, as you mentioned, Ozzy, this sort of lofty explosion we had in activity, it's not a surprise that it slowed down in conjunction with Bank of Canada action. So I I just want to make sure we have a perspective, you know, when people look at this and they're not running out of the door screaming, the sky's falling. No, because real estate has been good through us for the last 50 years, through some terrible times. I mean, a thousand banks closed down in the United States in 1990. Think about it, a thousand in the savings and loan crisis. And, and I, at, at a recent speech, I named seven major terrible times where the end of the world was predicted and never was it the end of the world. But we might have had a bit of a slowdown and we had to go through that slowdown. So sales are down 50%. The key is 50% are selling. And me as a seller, I need a quality realtor and a quality thinking my own self to get into the 50% that sell. Well, a key point, obviously, getting into the 60. Give us a couple of other things. I mean, this is one of the things you have seen these down markets. You have seen what uh, uh, different sellers to get into that half of the market that's active. That's going to sell. Just give me a couple more things. Like you, I agree, a quality realtor is going to know some of these things, but uh, what should I be looking for? Well, the owner too has to help. I mean, you can't get yesterday's price in a market that's today has come off. But we might be able, if, if I'm scared as a buyer on my high mortgage uh, interest, maybe as an owner, I could start saying, you know what? 
uh, I can maybe buy down that mortgage. I was talking to Kyle Green from Green Mortgage, and he says if you take a $500,000 mortgage at 6% and buy it down by 1% to 5 the cost of that is 25000 Well, how many times do we reduce the price on my house for 50000 Well, if I could, maybe. It's not as easy as saying you have to negotiate it. depends on in the, each individual time. But what if I could advertise a mortgage of a half a million dollars for 4%? Wouldn't I attract a whole bunch of buyers? And wouldn't I put myself into that 50% at sell? Or if I have an, a, sorry, an, a, a property that is where I make a profit, most owners don't really know that if I have a profitable uh, property, that if I carry the mortgage myself, I can write off the, in, the uh, profit over five years. So rather than maybe make that two million have to declare this year, I can declare it over five years. Mm. And they're happy to grant you a mortgage at a rate that you like. Yeah, and, I, and obviously, and that I like what I like about that idea is it's top of mind for buyers right now. What's the number one thing? They're not talking about other, and there are other things you could do, but number one on their mind is interest rates and mortgage rates. So you're addressing their number one concern and making it more attractive. But that's a great example of a little bit of creativity that this market requires that we really haven't been in that boat for quite a while. All right, and don't be scared. I mean, listen, 65% of us own our own home. We are a nation built on home ownership. It's a principle of, of our country, and it will continue. But prices are not going to get back to 2021 tomorrow. You have to wait a little while. But with inflation continuing, you're going to be just fine three or four years from now. In the meantime, don't be scared. Make a lot of offers. And if you lose that good deal, say, so what? Next. Yeah. Well, let's let me uh, speaking of what's to come now, of course, you'll be at the World Outlook Conference. So you're going to get asked this question six million times between now and then. Just give us a, just sort of a brush of what you think's coming. I think the most important dates are going to be October 26, the Canadian interest rate and November 4th, uh, the, the U.S. interest rates. Uh, we, we are thinking that they'll go to 1.75%. You and Victor discussed it last week at great length. The black swan was England last last uh, two weeks ago, where they had to come up with 65 billion overnight. And now, of course, the prime minister has resigned and the finance minister, and uh, they're all gone. And so when you look, this come out of left field. I wonder how many derivatives out there, and you know much better, and Victor much better. What is another black swan? So barring that, we will go through the higher interest rates. We will go through a very sluggish sideways market for maybe one or two years. However, if they get scared and do a pivot, which is possible, they did it, and you pointed out in 2019 how quick a pivot we did then. If they do the pivot, then all bets are off and we're going to go. So either a big, huge inflation ahead or an unhappy times ahead. Unfortunately, it's that knife's edge that we're sitting on. And nobody that I know other than maybe you uh, knows exactly how the outcome is going to be. Well, I think the problem is that you're looking at huge manipulation by government and central banks. That's what you're really predicting. It's sort of like the, the house of a price of a house or the stock market, et cetera, is all secondary to what those central banks are going to do, to what the government's going to do in their thing. So that makes it's a different environment in that way. We've never had this level of manipulation. Uh, we've had it before, but never at this degree across internationally, as you said, go to the UK, go to Japan. I mean, what's going on in Japan is that's another that's another book or movie, you know. So, yeah, that's what makes it more difficult. But I think you've nailed exactly what that challenge is going to be. So that's why people should go to Ozbuzz.ca because you get a chance to update them on a regular basis there. So I invite people to do that with Ozzy Jurek. Ozzy, thanks for taking the time. 
Thanks, Mike. And just remember, my wife and I were married a long time. And the other day I said to her, you know, we don't do these long romantic walks anymore. And she said, what are you talking about? I love romantic walks down every aisle at Hold Renful. <laughs> Ozzy Jurek, ozbuzz.ca. I want to go live to the trading desk now with Victor Adair. You know, Victor, we look at the markets. I mean, every week there's something abrupt, but come on. The Japanese yen, what is it, a 32-year low or something? I mean, I, I'm going back a few months. I kept on saying it's at a 24-year low. Bank of Japan's in there intervening, trying to keep those sort of relationships between interest rates, between their yen value, all of that stuff. But man, now it's a what, a 32-year low? Yeah, the Japanese yen absolutely cratered here at the end of the week. And by the way, I'm in Calgary at the Schachter Energy Conference this morning, uh, and they had their first snow of the of the year, apparently, overnight. Um, they, and I'm trying to keep track of what's going on on my laptop in a hotel room. So, <laughs> you know, we're, we're doing that. The, the yen has been down about 30%, I guess, from last year's highs. And lately, it's just been sort of falling and falling and falling. There's been some intervention in the market from the Bank of Japan and maybe from some other players. Here's kind of the picture on that, why it's important. The Japanese yen being in free fall has kind of opened the door to all other Asian currencies weakening against the U.S. dollar. But when you look at old school metrics like trade imbalances, the Asian currencies are already way too weak. You know, they, sh they should be higher, not going lower. So that's another thing that's causing stress in the markets all around the world, whether it's the bond market, stock market, or what have you. Well, and again, the key word is stress. And, and the reason I bring up, start with the Japanese yen, is again, people have to get, when you're talking things like 30-year lows or in the Great Britain pound, you know, 37-year low going back a couple of weeks, it just is a reminder, a reflection of the kind of turmoil we're in on a monetary basis, you know, and that's that's one of the big messages. I mean, but again, we're back to what's happening with interest rates. And I'm watching the yields on all sorts of U.S. rates. Uh, I saw 80 percent consensus sort of or analytics think that we're getting a three quarter percent jump in November and another one in you know December. So the game is still afoot out there. Well, when I look at the U.S. bond market, and to me, that's kind of the center of the universe, all right? I mean, the yields here at the end of the week were as high as 4.3%. At the beginning of August, Mike, that's just over two months ago, it was 2.5%. The, the bond market has been down for 11 of the last 12 weeks. It is a real steep fall in bond prices. What that means is, of course, a real steep rise in bond yields. We're at a 15-year high in bond yields. And, of course, that reflects through to the mortgage market and so on. And in behind all of that is we've got the Federal Reserve seems to be determined to create demand destruction so that they can get, uh, you know, the inflation rate down. And it's like hell or come, have, uh, come hell or high water, as my grandma would say. They're going to stick to their knitting and keep doing that. So it is producing more of that stress you were talking about all across markets. And, and what's important, I think, for people to understand is how much bigger the bond market is, how much more important. So let's go back like to 2000, you know, the, the great financial crisis, you know, in the housing market, 2009, 2010. And, you know, you didn't see the, the central banks intervene because of stock market drops. 
you know, they intervened because of problems in the credit market, starting, of course, with mortgage-backed securities, that kind of thing. But my point being, the bond market's way more important because it's the credit markets. That's the lifeblood of how the economy works. And, and uh, it isn't an equivalent. You know, stocks drop, oh, okay. You know, I get there's a lot of pain in that. There's pension funds, et cetera, but nothing like the bond market because it's so much bigger. And, and, and again, sorry, I'm going on, Vic, but it wasn't a coincidence that the um, Great Britain and the UK, the central bank jumps in, the Bank of England. It was a credit problem going on there. It wasn't because they sat back and said, look at how our stocks are not doing very well. No, it all comes down to the bond market. So when you give these numbers, it has incredible importance that I want people to you know, appreciate. It's far more important than when you get a stock drop. You know, when we go back to the great financial crisis, I remember you and I talking about how there was this uh, crisis of confidence you know, the financial institutions were afraid to lend to one another overnight. And I, I said, this is, that's, that's more important than gasoline in keeping the economy going. You have to have that confidence. So that's why they'll come in. So far, we don't have that, but there, there are certainly signs of stress when interest rates move so much uh, higher so quickly, it creates stress. Well, and again, uh, people maybe not appreciate to the degree the bond market trades every moment. Uh, but there were no buyers, as you say, at that point. But the same thing happened. We've had several of these liquidity problems. Same thing happened September 16, 2019 in the overnight market. Hey, no buyers all of a sudden, no lenders, you know, and again, Federal Reserve stepped in. Then we get, of course, the pandemic and the lockdowns and all that. Same thing. It was in late March and the central banks come out and said, hey, don't worry about that mortgage lending. We'll guarantee it. Don't worry about this other credit. We'll guarantee it. So it's not unprecedented to have these kind of, I think, in fact, there's a message there. Increasing uh, time frame shortens between the next credit problem when people don't want to buy that bond. Well, that's when the central banks have stepped in exactly what happened with the Bank of England, you know, two and a half weeks ago. Well, they use one of your words, there will be consequences, okay? When the central bank is so determined to push interest rates higher, to try to get inflation under control, and just a sidebar on that, inflation, when it started to move higher from transitory, it was largely goods inflation caused by supply shortages and so on. Now we're seeing it's services that are driving it higher and included in services is wages. And one of my arguments in my blog here over the past couple of months has been inflation will be sticky because people, workers, are going to try to get their wages up, you know, and that will feed through to the inflation. So we've got this, this almost a vicious circle going on. And throughout the financial markets, people are talking about if the Fed keeps this up, something will break. And what we mean by that is there'll be a dislocation that'll be so dramatic that the Fed will have to take action and the action will either be they'll say, OK, we're going to we're going to stand pat. We're going to pause or more dramatically, they're going to pivot. They're going to have to reverse and go the other way like the Bank of England did recently. The challenge is that, of course, there's so many moving parts here to explain. I'm saying the challenge for you and I to do it in just a couple of minutes when it's maybe the biggest financial story, not just of this year, but may determine the future uh, for many years to come. So I, I'm sort of jumping around a little bit here, uh, but it looks to me like the central banks you know, have a few mandates, but I think the number one mandate, and we're seeing it here, is they've got to have functioning credit markets. 
you know, that's the one that will supersede. They're worried about inflation. It's we got to have credit markets. So as you just said, Vic, so hence the Bank of England steps in and does something quite inflationary by keeping rates low. We talked about Japan at the outset there, keeping rates low because they need a functioning credit market. And that to me is what seems to be the dominant concern right now. And we have seen it. I mean, it's not just emerging markets. We're not just talking Turkey, you know, or Venezuela or Argentina. It's now moved into Japan, you know, the fourth, third, fourth largest economy, Great Britain, at least this week when I check my watch, it's still the sixth largest economy. We'll see. Let's check back in on that. This is major stuff going on. And as I say, I think that's what the central banks are still, you know, really top of mind is we've got to make sure these credit markets function. And that, in a word, it's confidence. Uh, the market has to have confidence that, you know, the Fed will be there, that the markets will continue to work. And, and by the way, Mike, you know, it's not like the world's going to explode tomorrow. I mean, this is stuff that's going on in the background. It does look as though the stress is going to show up somewhere. Uh, the the Bank of Canada, just to change gears a little bit, they're scheduled to meet this coming week. It, everybody's expecting a half a point increase there and then likely another half point next month. But just as background to what we're just saying, you know, if something big does come along and cause the Fed to change gears, then you would expect the Bank of Canada to change their policy as well. A lot of things happening here, showing up in the currency market, the credit markets, the commodity markets, and currencies in particular this week. And it just might be the currency markets that are, you know, wave the checkered flag here on some of the moves we've had. Well, you know, you're singing to the choir when you talk about confidence, because I think that's the big picture always is confidence leaving government. Uh, and I think that I want to just reemphasize what you said. I don't think the world's coming to an end, but governments may be. I, I don't think it's a private sector issue. You know, 2009, 2010 was a private sector issue. This is a, a sovereign debt issue and everything around it. I mean, the losses getting taken in the credit markets, in the bond markets are just massive thanks to this huge jump in interest rates, as you alluded to earlier. And I think that's that's the story we're talking about, is sovereign debt here and government-related debt. Well, the Federal Reserve has to be aware that what they're doing is dramatic and it's having consequences. We've seen uh, in my blog, again, I referred to the UK as maybe the canary in the coal mine for the pension funds. A couple of weeks we talked about not only are the value of the pension fund assets going down, but their liabilities are going up because they've got these cost of living adjustments they have to make. So, and the Fed's going to know that. And they're probably watching like a hawk for, for the early warning signs that they'll need to back off. Uh, Mike, before we wrap up, I got to mention I am in Calgary at Schachter's conference, so I'm not going to get my trading desk out, notes out uh, on time this week. Probably get them out on Sunday when I get back to uh, get back to British Columbia. Okay, so that's victoradare.ca. Vic, I'll leave you with this, is that we had uh, financial institutions meeting with the federal government in the U.S. this week, worried that they could have a similar-like credit problem. I mean, and they said, no, we can't. That was the conclusion. But the fact that they met was significant. Also, I see that the uh, U.K. Treasury is going to ship about 11 billion pounds into, their, uh, into the Bank of England because they've got bond losses. The list just goes on. We're going to have a lot more to talk about. I'll be tuning into your trading desk notes uh, for sure. As you said, though, Sunday this week.
Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Of course, so much about energy, so much about climate policy directing energy. I mean, uh, again, number one subject in the world, I'd argue, right now, along with inflation and what it costs for you to live and sovereign debt. So, yeah, there's a small basket of things that are top of mind concerns. But for this week's Goofy, I go to German fin Federal Minister for Economic Affairs and Climate Action, Robert Habeck. In a speech about the current energy woes this week, he said, in quotes, nuclear power and fossil fuels brought us here. They caused this crisis. They are not the solution, end of quote. You know what? It is hard to fathom how hard he had to work to come up with that rationalization for ill-conceived climate policies that demanded the end to nuclear power and to fossil fuels when they didn't have replacement power while overlooking the need for backup power for that intermittent generation of their renewable energy. My goodness gracious. I wonder if he thinks it's nuclear power's fault that the decision to decommission three plants last December, now they're going to phase out the remaining three by April, was December, now by April, that's forced the new reliance on coal. Is it fossil fuels' fault that the government completely underestimated the danger of relying on Russia for oil and gas because they had shut down fossil fuel and relied on intermittent generation of renewable energy? Come on, this crisis is completely the making of the German government green policies. They spent $580 billion on green energy with no backup power. So they ignored warnings. They got them from President Obama, got them from Donald Trump, and relied on Russia. The ugly truth, though, is the money Germany was sending to Russia for energy has financed the evasion of Ukraine. But the point to get is the refusal of so many in the end-of-the-world climate crowd to learn any lessons. Virtually no mea culpas. Environmental groups, by the way, are still filing lawsuits and protests to stop the development of the very resources needed to build wind turbines, solar panels, manufacture batteries. Oh my gosh, I can't even keep track of the number of lawsuits against lithium or potential lithium mines that they know they need. And there's been no acknowledgement of the need for fossil fuels, by the way, when it comes to mining, massive mining excavation, processing, transporting, uh, refining the materials needed to transition to renewable energy. What do you think they're going to run on? It's fossil fuels. But that's not all. There's numerous lawsuits right now to prevent wind and solar projects, many of them coming from the environmental movement. In fact, most are. Gosh, in the U.S., nearly 60 local municipalities having doing the bidding of the environmental movement have proposed a moratorium on new solar development. This is just in the last year. And hydro is not exempt. I was looking at the comments of Gary Walkner, executive director of Save the Colorado River. I mean, it's incredible. He's calling it a dirty source of energy. But the point is this. The big irony is that clinging to the ideological dogma, ignoring reality, they have done more to delay the transition to renewable energy than any opponent of climate change. That's all the time we have today. Hey, just a reminder, by the way, and I do appreciate it when you tell friends, family, colleagues about Money Talks. Uh, go to Mike's Money Talks 
uh, on Facebook, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. Go to Money Talks Tweets and go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. And a reminder, all the details about the World Outlook Conference, uh, which we're selling tickets for now. I mean, I, I was thinking, can the environment have been any more inviting to come in here from some of the top people in the English-speaking analytical world? I mean, and how much will change between now and then? Because it seems like on a daily basis, Big time stuff is happening. So I hope you make a point. First time live in person. My gosh, I guess it's three three years. That's off the top of my head. I guess we did one in uh, 2019, uh, 2020, and then that was it. We lost 21. We lost uh, 22. We had to do them online. There'll still be an online component here, by the way, and you will be able to access it. But just a reminder, go to mikesmoneytalks.c and click on and uh, check out what we're doing at the World Outlook Conference. In the meantime... Hey, I hope you go out, have a terrific week. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.